Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We're continuing our sermon series, which is called Table Read, playing your role in God's drama. So a table read, if you don't know, is when players, actors and actresses in a drama gather around a table to read the script of the drama together. And this gives actors and actresses two very important things. Number one, it gives them familiarity. And number two, it gives them confidence. It gives them familiarity. See, when you are familiar with the whole story of which you are a part, it makes you more confident when it's your turn to step onto the stage. I hope we believe that the Bible is best understood as the true story of the world. A divine drama. It answers questions like, where did we come from? And where are we going? And what went wrong? And those questions are all story questions. And while Jesus is the hero of this story, we still have a vital part to play. And I'm really loud, so I'm going to pull this down here. In other words, I think we should, as a church, sit down and get to know the script. I think we as a church should sit down and understand and gain familiarity with what it is that we are in. But for us to do this, we need to understand the story. So in other words, we should have a table read, which is what we're doing. We're sitting down and we're getting to know the whole Bible. Book by book. So we're not going through a book section by section. We're going book by book. And at times we'll go section by section, multiple books at a time. Why? So that by the time we are done... With this sermon series, we will have familiarity and God willing boldness and confidence to play our role well. The last few weeks we looked at Genesis and Exodus. This morning, uh, I guess buckle your seatbelts, we are in Leviticus. We're not skipping Leviticus, friends. No way. Uh, But first, let me just pray before we dig in. Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation, Of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and be acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And as redeemer, we know that we are acceptable in Christ. And you long to reveal yourself to us this morning. So would you, by your Holy Spirit, transform us as we gaze upon Jesus? That's what we want. We actually want to see Jesus in Leviticus. So that we would love him more. So that he would be more lovely to us than he is right now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so about 15 years ago, I finally got around to reading Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, This was after I had already watched some of the movies. And I remember feeling very, very confused about a very early chapter in what I think is book one. And it features, this chapter features a strange character by the name of Tom Bombadil. And I know there's Tolkien, like... I almost said freaks, but that's probably true. Freaks out there who know a lot about Tom Bombadil. But I remember reading this and thinking, this is strange. And he's strange for all kinds of reasons if you've read the books. And I could get into that. But perhaps the strangest thing about Tom Bombadil in the chapter in this saga that Tolkien writes, The Lord of the Rings, is that Tolkien himself honors Tom Bombadil with an entire chapter. 
and then seemingly never references him again. Tom Bombadil is a chapter in an epic that seems to have no place. Readers might ask, why Tom Bombadil? Does he serve the plot? And obviously screenwriters like Peter Jackson, who made movies off of the books, decided he has no place in the plot. Which is why if you've seen the movies, you don't know who Tom Bombadil is. Well, for much of my Christian life, this is how I felt about Leviticus. Whenever I opened my Bible and I saw Leviticus, I would ask to myself, why Leviticus? How does this serve the plot? I think it's a fair bet that many of us have asked the same question. Why Leviticus? I think this book is a struggle for at least three reasons. I mean, Leviticus is strange to us. There's a giant culture gap between the world of Leviticus and ours. I think also Leviticus can be offensive to us. It defends our Western contemporary sensibilities. There are laws that rub against us the wrong way. There are, even the sacrificial system itself might make us squirm. Leviticus is, above all, I think confusing to many of us. What do we make of all these sacrifices? What do we make of all these strange laws? And so what do we do with this struggle? Usually it's one of three things. We either denigrate it. We like throw shade on Leviticus. Uh, We think it's a bad look for God. And so we functionally cut it out of our Bibles, even if we don't use scissors. But others of us, we don't denigrate it, but we definitely diminish it. We kind of have retired this book from our Bible. Or at least hope that God did. But I think most of us, if I'm honest, most of us sitting here this morning, we don't denigrate it, we don't diminish it, but we certainly disregard it. Do you know what I mean? We ignore it. We kind of downplay it. We honor it as scripture, but we kind of ignore it. I know this is my temptation. I say to myself, I don't know what to do with this. But praise God, Jesus fulfills it. Moving on. Right? Isn't that how we usually approach it? But here's the awkward thing that we have to wrestle with this morning. God's people, ancient Israel, did not denigrate it, diminish it, or disregard it. They delighted in it. We have to wrestle with that. Psalm 119 is a love song to the Old Testament law or the Torah, which included the book of Leviticus. And so if you read Psalm 119, when it says how I love your law, how I delight in your law, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That is a window into the heart of the ancient Israelite worshiper. And they are essentially saying, I love this book. I love what's in it. And I love what it does for me. I love how Leviticus expert Jay Sklar, and you're going to hear that name a lot this morning, puts it. He writes, While many Christians regard Leviticus as a burden, the Israelites looked on it as a blessing. For them, it was life-giving instruction and answered life's most important questions. How do we live in relationship with the Lord, our covenant king? And how do we reflect his holy character to the watching world? And here's the other awkward thing. Not only did Israelite delight in it, an Israelite delight in it, but Jesus delighted in it too. So we have to wrestle with that. He prayed and he lived Psalm 119 
Also, Jesus loved to quote from Leviticus. Did you know that? Did you know, love the Lord, I'm sorry, love your neighbor as yourself is a direct quote from Leviticus. Jesus didn't pull that out of the air. Jesus was quoting Leviticus. Also, you could say that much of Jesus's ministry to the oppressed and to the marginalized and to the poor could be seen as a fulfillment of Levitical law. Not a departure from Levitical law. But a fulfillment. And so my goal this morning is simple. If it's ambitious, it's this. I want to make the case for Leviticus. I told my wife earlier, I think what hope needs is a survivor's guide to Leviticus. A survivor's guide. But this morning, I think, is more ambitious than that. I don't want to just survive this text. I want to actually delight in it. When I was in seminary years ago, I had a Canadian professor by the name of Jay Sklar. I quoted from him in a minute ago. Well, Dr. Sklar devoted his whole life to the study of Leviticus and became one of the very few experts in this field. And it's important to know that everything I say this morning, by the way, is basically just a restatement of what he has taught me and of his work. And if you're helped by the sermon, help him out and by his commentary. But that said... It was Dr. Sklar's goal to open the world of Leviticus to his students so that they would move from disregard to delight. That was his life goal, and that is, in a way, my desire for us this morning in the brief time we have. We're going to get there, I think, in two steps. Number one, by exploring the shape of Leviticus, just figuring out what it is and the order of it all. And number two, by exploring the surprising significance of this ancient and strange book. So let's just get a handle on the shape, the sort of flyover of Leviticus. Here's a general outline that we're going to use. Okay, so chapter one, intimacy with God. Chapters one through seven, offerings. Eight through ten, launch with an exclamation mark. Okay, (laughs) that's important. Uh, Chapters 11 through 15, we'll call it right living. And 16, we'll call it the Day of Atonement. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we had a sermon on the Day of Atonement. And so you're getting a lot of Leviticus from hope. I promise it's not like our thing. It's just the timing of it all. It's strange. And then chapter 17 through 27, we'll call it holiness, etc. So let's just start at the beginning. Intimacy with God. The very first verse, if you have this book open on your laps... Sets the stage for Leviticus. It says this. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now remember, if you were with us with Exodus, the tent of meeting is the tabernacle. And this is the house that God told Israel to build for him in the book of Exodus. Why? Do you remember why he told them to build this house? So that God could permanently draw near to his people. That's why. So tent of meeting, I would argue, is gospel in itself. It means, and it not just doesn't just mean symbolically, but actually experientially, that God is not a distant God. But God loves to draw near to his people. And we see in verse 1 that he not only draws near to his people experientially, but he also speaks to them. Because verse 1 says, And God said to Moses, He's not a silent God. He's not a distant God. He's not an aloof God. He's a relational God who draws near and who speaks. And he speaks to Moses. And what follows is this ancient book of Leviticus. And it provides Israel a way to live with God in their, in his, in their midst. 
Remember, God is utterly perfect and set apart. He is holy. That's the word for it, holy. But people are not. We're his creation for one. But ever since Genesis 3, we tend to rebel against God. Amen? We tend to rebel against him. And this creates a problem. And if we don't grasp this problem right away, then Leviticus makes zero sense to us. The problem is this. How can a holy God permanently draw near to an unholy people? That's the dilemma. And if we were writing a story, we might say, God, chill out. (laughs) Just cool down. Just draw near. Like, just tone down your holiness. If you really want to be with us, tone it down. But that's impossible because we're talking about God. But honestly, it's undesirable. Just think about in your own life all the unanswered injustices that you've endured. Or think about in the global scale, all of the unanswered injustices that have endured. If we're telling God to scale down his holiness, then we're basically saying that stuff just remains unanswered. See, we want God to be holy. We want God to be perfectly just, perfectly pure, perfectly good. We want him to be God. And so the question still remains, how is a holy God to dwell permanently with an unholy people? If we can't shrug off his holiness, what is the solution? How can we have intimacy with God again? Do you remember the Garden of Eden? We walked through that a couple sermons ago. God walked with his people. How can that happen again and account for our rebellion? Well, verse 1, friends, of Leviticus I would argue is a giant gift. It says from God that God himself is going to provide a way and Leviticus is his way at this stage in history. Before my wife Josie and I got married, we dated long distance for two years. I went to Miami. She went to Ohio State. Ohio State, sorry. The Ohio State. And I'm an engrafted Buckeye, therefore. Um, the first year, I went away to Europe for a summer. The second year of our long-distance dating, she went away as a camp counselor all summer. Both created what looked to be insurmountable barriers to relationship and intimacy. But I did everything I knew how to do to stay close to her. And so in those days in Europe, there were these things called internet cafes. <laughs> Aging myself. <laughs> That was a thing, and I think it still is, but I don't know who goes to them. And you go to this internet cafe, you pay the person at the front, and they give you like 30 minutes with the internet. And so I would write, it's awesome, so I would write emails, I would write emails uh, to my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And then when she was a camp counselor, they made all the counselors put their phones away, and so there was no access, and so I would just write snail mail. Just old school snail mail. And I recommend that, even in the age of the phone, okay? Write letters to each other. It's a good thing. Why did I do all this? I wanted to be with her. I wanted to cover the distance. Well, that is the heartbeat of Leviticus. I know you don't believe me. (laughs) It is the heartbeat of Leviticus. The heartbeat of Leviticus, this ancient and strange book, is actually quite simple. It's God covering the distance. It's God answering the question, how can I restore Eden where I walked with my image bearers? How can I restore intimacy 
Remain who I am. Holy. And my people be honest about who they are. Not only. That's verse one. Amen. Let's call it a day. No more Leviticus. Okay. Just kidding. There's more. There's more. All right. We're going to go on. So chapters one through seven. This is in which God God gives Israel seven. I'm sorry. Five different offerings. Five different offerings. The burnt offering. The grain offering. The fellowship offering. The purification offering. And the reparation offering. Who's taking notes? I know there's note takers out there. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the purification offering, and the reparation offering. Now, all five of these offerings have a unique purpose to cover the distance. So the burnt offering is for atonement. Verse 4 of chapter 1 says the person lays his hand on the animal. And a better translation probably of that is leans on the animal. And so what is going on at that moment? The animal is taking on the sin of the person and that animal will make atonement. Atonement. Whenever I hear that word atonement, what do you think of when, I hear that, when you hear that word? Is it a movie or a book? When I hear atonement, I think of English soccer. <laughs> Here's why. One of the reasons I was actually attracted to watching English soccer, the Premier League, uh, was the commentation, like the commentators. Their la- the language they use when they call a game is just poetic. Can I get an amen? Anyone? Anyone know what I'm talking about? I, say, I feel very alone right now. I need somebody <laughs> to say I agree. See, one of the first games I ever watched as a new fan, there was an equalizer goal, which is poetic by itself. Equalizer. I love that phrase. Equalizer goal. And the commenter shouted, he atones! He atones! And I was like, I'm in. That is amazing. But it doesn't really help us, does it? What does atonement mean? Atonement is not scoring a goal. Atonement is not leveling the score. Atonement isn't even making up for a mistake. Atonement comes from the Hebrew word kippur. Let me find that for you. Kippur. And when you look at all the ways that this word is used across the whole Old Testament, two key ideas emerge. Number one, purification. And number two, ransom. Hang on to that. Purification and ransom or rescue. Rescue at great cost. Ransom. And this is because, as Jay Scar points out, sin does two things. It defiles and it endangers. It puts us in danger. And so atonement deals with both. It purifies the sinner and it rescues the sinner from God's holy justice. Atonement. It's not as easy as scoring a goal. Atonement. And that's the burnt offering. What we have next is the grain offering. The grain offering. This is like adding bread to dinner. It's always offered with other offerings. Okay? So the grain offering is offered with other offerings. And it sort of takes on the meaning of the other offerings. And so if a grain offering was being offered with the burnt offering that we just talked about, it would take on the meaning of the burnt offering and sort of level it up a bit. And then you have the fellowship offering. Some of your translations may call it the peace offering. The fellowship offering is amazing. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay? Do you believe me? Uh, the fellowship offer- offering is this. The entire animal... So the entire animal is burnt up in the burnt offering. Hence the name, burnt offering. That's the appropriate title for it. Um, but only the fat is burned in the fellowship offering. Why? Well, for one, the fat is the best part. And so they're giving God the best part. But that leaves a lot to eat yourself. And so the fellowship offering was actually a preparation of a meal. And it was a community meal. In fact, it was a covenant meal. It was meant to be so that all of God's people could eat with God. Hence the name fellowship offering. It's a time of fellowship. Think of the last wedding reception you've been to. That's essentially a covenant meal, isn't it? Because you watched a covenant of marriage take place. It celebrates the covenant of marriage. And then we eat afterwards. And we have a feast and we celebrate the fellowship that we just observed. Well, that is what is happening with the fellowship offering. You are celebrating the covenant, the fellowship, the marriage that you have with God. You are celebrating with a meal the never let you go commitment that God has for his people, his marriage to you. And if you are thinking about the Lord's Supper right about now, you are on the right track. The fellowship offering finds its anchor. I'm sorry, the Lord's Supper finds its anchor in the fellowship offering. Jesus himself makes that connection. It's a meal with God. It's a fellowship celebration. Then we get to the purification offering. Uh, This offering highlights the need for purification. Remember, if sin defiles, for reasons we don't totally understand, as I've learned, blood in those days was kind of like ancient Clorox. It cleaned. It purified. And so the purification offering was a powerful way to highlight the need for purification. And then you have finally the reparation offering. And this offering names a reality I think that most of us know personally. And it's this. That sin is not just sin in a vacuum. Sin often breaks and harms other people. And what is broken needs repaired. I don't know if any of you have been sinned against and repair has not happened. It is agonizing. Why? Because a basic fundamental reality is not being named. And that is that sin breaks. It harms somebody. And there's a reparation offering that names that reality. It names what was lost and what was broken. Reparation. Offerings. Let's, let's, let's cruise on, please. So launch, 8 through 10, chapters 8 through 10, we'll call launch. It's because when worship, after all these offerings are described and unpacked for us, we find in chapter 8, finally, the launch of worship. And so I remember when our church launched, after years of planning, our church had our first worship service at the Hyatt Place in the Grandview Yard. And this is when none of the Grandview Yard was developed yet. Who was there? Anybody? Come on, let's see. Yes. Um, and we were at the Hyatt place in a small little room and something and we and we just launched. We sort of had our first public worship and something like this is happening in Leviticus. Aaron and his sons are, are ordained. They're anointed with oil. Offerings are made. And then in chapter nine, verse 23, God shows up, which is a good thing. And it says in 23, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And that, friends, should be our expectation every time we gather as a church. 
the glory of the Lord shows up and appears to all the people. But then there's this theme in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've discovered it. Um, When things are great, things tend to go downhill very, very fast. And so we saw that with Moses. He's in the mountain experiencing glory and experiencing God's presence. And yet the people of Israel are worshiping an idol. Well, similar to that, here we have in chapter 10, we read about the death of Nadab and Abihu, who decided to kind of go their own way and worship God how they wanted. And their death sets a stage. It's a shocking thing. And it sets the stage for all that follows, really. It demonstrates, in a lot of respects, the profound holiness of God. And we can't look away from it as much as we would like. Which takes us to chapters 11 through 15, what I'm calling right living. Because what chapters 11 through 15 do, and they won't make sense unless you understand ritual states. All right, I'm sounding like a professor now, I'm sorry. But let's talk about that. Ritual states. God, so in this cultural moment of Leviticus, ritual states was a well-understood thing. They didn't have to learn it like we're learning it right now. So God is holy. And at that time, there are ritual states that you would be in. And that could be things like impure ritual state. Animals or even objects could be in these states, pure and holy. So you have God who's always holy, and then you have three ritual states. You have impure, pure, and holy. And I think it's super helpful to know three things about ritual states before we move on. Number one, ritual states are not moral states. So because you're in an impure state does not mean you sinned or you are yourself unrighteous. Um, Dr. Sklar actually compares ancient ritual states to how we think about germs today. If one of you gets COVID, you enter a state that renders you unable to work for five days. Or to go out for five days. Well, this isn't a moral state. It's a ritual state. In fact, an unrighteous person could be in a state of purity. A righteous person could be in a state of impurity. That's an important category. Number two, ritual states were very normal back then. So we think it's a bizarre way of living in our world. Am I right about that? Like some of us are like struggling right now. Um, But this didn't just drop out of the sky. This was normal. And God wants to use these ritual states to communicate something about his character, about who he is. And that's what he does. And then thirdly, ritual states are meant to point to something far more important to God. The whole point of ritual states like impure, pure, and holy was to cultivate purity and holiness of heart. The prophets and Jesus rail against Israel when they miss this basic point. So I love this quote from Christopher Wright. Ritual cleanness from the kitchen to the sanctuary was meant to symbolize God's greater requirement of moral integrity, social justice. And covenant loyalty. In fact, as the prophets and Jesus vigorously pointed out, if these latter things were lacking, then ritual cleanness of the most scrupulous kind at every level was worthless. And I love this line, but it pins me to the wall. If Christians were as serious about moral distinctiveness as Israel was about ritual cleanness, then our salt and light might have great power in this world. And this takes us to chapter 16. 
Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know about this. And if you weren't, I encourage you to listen on. But essentially, God gives Israel a day that helps them know for sure that their sins have been taken care of. This is a great gift from God because it's a very memorable, undeniable proclamation from God saying to all of his people, all of your sins are taken care of. And it's done by way of um, first a cleansing of his house by the blood of the sacrifice. And then God deals with their sin with a ritual involving two goats. One dies and becomes a sin offering. And one stays alive and becomes a sin bearer and a sin out into the cut off land. So as to say, your sin would cut you off, but this scapegoat is going to get cut off instead. And that is the day of atonement. If you're, if you're standing there in the crowd, just picture yourself right now, and you see the priest leaning on that goat, and then you see them releasing it off, and you watch it go away so that you don't see it anymore, and then the priest says to you, that is your sin. What would that do to you? I mean, it would, for me, it would, just, it would be hard to believe. And then secondly, once I believed it, my shoulders would relax. I'd be like, are you kidding me? As far as that has gone away, as far as the east is from the west, yes, your sins are taken care of. Yom Kippur. Which takes us to the final section, these last 10 chapters, which we're calling holiness, etc. And I think this section is best summarized with a a verse in that section, chapter 19, verse 2. You may have heard of it. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. These are laws that deal with holiness, set-apartness in all of life, everything from sexuality to spirituality. And it communicates an important fact that God is God over all of life, not just our prayer life, all of life. It communicates the reality that God is a king over all, not just a king over some things. And so that's the basic, broad, rough shape of Leviticus, which I think may help us better understand the book. At least if, you've, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity and you know a little bit, like you've heard of Leviticus, I hope this helps. It gives you a little broad overview of what it's about. But I want to ask this question as we close. How does this inform my life today? I mean, if, if, if this sermon series is called Table Read and we're treating Leviticus as part of our script, then what does that mean for my part in the story? I want to explore two surprising significances of this book with you. And the first is this. Leviticus tells us that we have a surprising purpose from God. Jay Sklar actually helped me see that Leviticus is in many ways a retelling of Eden, the garden. Which gets to what? Our original purpose. And so Leviticus is like Eden where God cultivates a garden. In fact, the word separate is used over and over and over again in the creation. God separated light from dark. Well, that same Hebrew word is used in the book of Leviticus as God is sort of cultivating a garden. Leviticus is like Eden where God blesses humanity with fruitfulness and Sabbath rest and his presence. In fact, Leviticus 26, God makes a promise to Israel. And I'm quoting, I will walk among you and be your God. When was the last time you heard God say, I am walking among you? It was Eden. 
And then Leviticus is like Eden where God gives humanity a mission. A mission to bear his image and to reflect his ways to the world. He says, be holy for I am holy. In other words, God is saying to Israel, be like me. Be like me. And that will bless the nations. That will help, help. That will bless them. So Scar puts it this way. Simply put, the Israelites are not only a signpost back to Eden. They are to become a manifestation of Eden. And extend Eden's borders to every corner of the earth. Isn't that a great image? Think about that. Eden. Where his image bearers are reflecting God to one another. Who are loving God and loving each other. Loving God, loving neighbor. And then they are to originally expand the borders to the whole world. That gets ruptured in the fall. But what we have in Leviticus is a sort of interjection where God says, I'm going to restore this. And, re- and repurpose this so that you have that same mission again. So that's the surprising significance, I think, of Leviticus. Is that it gives us a mission to reflect Eden to the world. Now, it should be said, and maybe some of you are thinking this right now. That many of the laws of Leviticus are not to be applied in a wooden way today. Uh, because either Jesus fulfilled them. Or because we are under a new covenant, not the covenant of Sinai. Or because the church, frankly, is not a nation state like Israel was. But many of these laws are repeated verbatim in the New Testament. So we know that Leviticus can't just be like cast out. That it has a ton of moral Authority in the life of the early church. So it ought to have moral authority in our life too. All of it. And so while we don't necessarily apply or obey the laws in a wooden way, we do and are responsible to look to the heart of the lawgiver and ask, what is it? What is this law? Even if, because we're not a nation state, we obey it. What is the heart of the lawgiver? What does this say about the lawgiver? And then reflect that in our life. So here's one example from Leviticus 19. I'm just going to read it. And I want you to do that right now with us, with me. I want you to just do this reflection. Say, what does this ancient law that has to do with an agrarian people, what does it say about the lawgiver? And then how can I today reflect that Edenic purpose into the world? Sound good? All right, let's do it. Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Look at this sermon illustration right here. Amazing. We didn't plan that. This is all 4-H right there. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. 
but you shall fear the God, fear God, for I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in the court. Listen to this. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you should judge your neighbor. I mean, by the way, guys, that was unheard of in the ancient Near East to say that every human being, every human being is equal under the Lord. Unbelievable. Verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, we would not woodenly obey these laws unless you live in an agrarian society and leaving grapes in your vineyard is a way to bless the sojourner in your neighborhood. I'm sure there are actually more literal interpretation or literal applications of this uh, than I'm even aware of in different settings. But we can trace the law to the heart of the giver and say, how can I reflect this to the world with my generosity, with my hospitality? Do I give preferential treatment to those who look like me or who have more power? Because I want to climb the ladder. Are my words getting cheapened by lies? And so on. So this is a calling. This is a calling on all of us to see the heart of God, our Redeemer, and to reflect it out to the world. But this brings us to our second surprising Significance, And it's this, that we have in this book surprising intimacy with God. It's been said that true intimacy requires two things, being fully known and being fully accepted. And so if you think about it, one without the other is not true intimacy. If I'm accepted by you, but you don't know my secrets, then it's a cheap acceptance. If I'm fully known by you because I tell you my secrets, but that causes you to reject me, then your knowledge of me pushes me away. True intimacy requires full knowledge and full acceptance. And that is the picture that Leviticus gives us with God. It calls Israel to be totally honest with their sins. And yet God provides a way to be fully accepted by him. I mean, let's be honest, too often we're reflecting the world to the world. Or we're reflecting our own ways, our own selfish heart to the world. We're not reflecting God's heart to the world. I mean, as we read even chapter 19, if you're honest with yourself, you're thinking, yeah, that's, that's lovely, but man, I have a long way to go. And that's why we need to understand that the heartbeat of Leviticus is God saying, I know that. I know that. I know that. And I want to be near you still. So I'm providing a way. I'm providing a way. God wants you to come into his presence exactly as you are because he wants you. He wants all of you. And if that's true of Leviticus, friends, how much more true is it in light of King Jesus? Let's just end on Jesus. Sound good? Let's end this time with Jesus. The once and for all Perfect sacrifice. 
who atones for our sins. That is to say, remember, who ransoms us, who rescues us from the judgment our sin deserves, but also purifies us. If you're here this morning and you're just feeling like, ah, I just, I can't scrub this out. I don't know. I I don't care what people tell me. I just, I just, Jesus is your atonement. He cleans you. He cleans you. You are clean. 100% clean. And you are ransomed. You are rescued. Atonement. He is the perfect high priest so that he is without sin. The high priest in Leviticus needed to offer sacrifices for themselves. Jesus doesn't have to do that. And in fact, because of that, he can offer himself for you. And he does. In fact, the only reason Leviticus worked for Israel, if you want to use that word, is because God knew Jesus was on his way. And when he came, he not only fulfilled every single sacrifice, every single offering that we just read about, but he also made us into his tabernacle. So now we have intimacy with God. He not only walks with us as promised in Leviticus, but he walks in us by the Holy Spirit. We are the tabernacle. That's what the New Testament says. And that's because of what Jesus has done. The great high priest who gives us access to the Holy of Holies so that we can march boldly into his presence. A few years ago, a friend of mine who's sitting here in this church actually um, invited me to watch Marvel's Endgame on opening night. It was like a big movie. Remember that movie? Um, The grand finale of like all the Marvel movies up to that point. I accepted the offer, even though I'd only seen like a few movies. <laughs> I've only seen like Iron Man 1 and maybe a few other ones. And I, I was like, yes, this sounds fun. And I enjoyed the movie thoroughly. It was great. But my friend was like practically in tears next to me. He was like having a moment. <laughs> he was like, it was like profound for him. <laughs> Why? Because he like watched every single movie probably three or four times. He knew the story. I enjoyed the movie. It was enjoyable on its own terms. But I could tell my friend was really, really, really connecting with it. Why? He knew it. He knew it. He knew the story. And that's the good news of Jesus. Jesus is accessible to all of you, no matter what. But even if you just get to know a little bit of Leviticus, just a little bit, hopefully this morning helps you. Then all that Jesus does and did starts to move us into greater worship. It fuels our worship and it makes us want to reflect him to this world. And so, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this mission. You've made us into mirrors. And though those mirrors are shattered and broken, you are, by degrees, Helping us to reflect more and more your glory, your heart, your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your justice to the world. But Lord, we know that Jesus did it perfectly and he did it for us. So give us boldness and give us confidence in this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.